Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garnet. It's Thursday, January 28th, and this is what we're going to talk about this week. The world is waiting on pharma giant Johnson & Johnson to report pivotal study results for its COVID vaccine. We'll talk about what to expect. Something strange is afoot when it comes to CRISPR on Wall Street. We're joined by Kevin Davis, executive editor of the CRISPR Journal, to talk about genome editing stocks and the future of the revolutionary technology. Finally, we chat with Dr. Megan Ranney, an emergency room physician and Brown University professor, about the challenges of COVID science communication in a post-Trump world. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, the chief revenue officer of STAT. I'm here with Chris Banco, the CEO of Conexa, a software company that powers patient-centric research. Chris, what are some of the ways we can make digital health tools more meaningful for patients? Developing a new digital tool to collect data from patients outside of a clinic provides researchers an opportunity to learn new and important things about diseases and their symptoms. But we need to make sure that the patients who use wearables and sensors understand why that data, which contribute to tools known as digital biomarkers, are so important. One way to make sure this happens is to engage with patients throughout the process of collecting their data. At Conexa, we consult with patients as well as caregivers in the development, implementation, and the interpretation of digital biomarkers. Thanks, Chris. For more information, visit ConexaHealth.com. That's K-O-N-E-K-S-A Health.com. The pharma giant Johnson & Johnson reported fourth quarter and 2020 earnings this week, which is always of interest to investors. What J&J did not do this week is announce results from a highly anticipated and pivotal clinical trial of its COVID-19 vaccine. However, those crucial vaccine data are apparently just days away. J&J CEO Alex Gorski said the company is working to complete the analysis of its 45,000 patient study by early next week. You know, the outcome of the J&J vaccine study is, of course, hugely important as countries around the world struggle to vaccinate people against the SARS-CoV-2 virus. You know, we have spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about the vaccines from Moderna and the partnership between Pfizer and BioNTech that are being rolled out currently. Both of those vaccines rely on mRNA technology. The J&J vaccine is different in many ways. Right. So J&J's vaccine, I guess, is is similar philosophically, but it uses a very different technology. So the company uses a harmless virus that doesn't replicate to penetrate the body's cells and, like the mRNA vaccine, compel them to make a protein found on the surface of SARS-CoV-2. And then your immune system ideally sees that protein, uh, adapts to it, creates antibodies to it, and thus you're protected from infection. But beyond the technology, I think that the key differentiation between J&J and the mRNA vaccines we've come to know and love is that at least in this one big trial, it's being studied as a single shot rather than two shots spaced out by a number of weeks. And so, you know, the implications probably don't need to be explained. Um, It's much more convenient to inject people once with something than to do so twice. And so a lot of the uh, interest and optimism relying on on this J&J trial are that if it's positive and if it's, you know, especially uh, overwhelmingly positive, that would be wonderful news for the world. So, Meg, we know that the supply of current COVID vaccines is constrained. You know, manufacturing capacity is a huge issue. You spoke to J&J Chief Financial Officer Joseph Walk this week. What did he tell you about J&J's ability to manufacture its COVID vaccine? And are they able to meet expected timelines? 
Right. So there was a report a couple weeks ago in the New York Times that Johnson & Johnson was lagging in terms of its production capacity. And the New York Times cited some kind of internal goals uh, between Operation Warp Speed and J&J as to you know when they would be able to supply certain amounts of the vaccine. What we know is that the U.S. has purchased 100 million doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And what Joe Wolk, the CFO, told us is, quote, we're very confident and on track to meet our commitments, which which he said are 100 million doses to the U.S. by the end of June, 200 million doses by the end of the year to the EU with shipments starting in April, and to developing countries about 200 million doses this year. They said they would start shipping in the second half. But guys, it doesn't necessarily speak to the sort of incremental goals of supply that might be set and whether there was p- perhaps some kind of disruption that maybe did disrupt the initial supply of the vaccine, which we saw with Pfizer as well. You know, they originally thought they would be able to deliver 100 million doses by the end of 2020. In early November, they cut that to 50 million. Uh, they're still delivering the same number of doses, but the, at the beginning, it was just pushed back a little bit. So that could be what's happening. We don't know. No, we did hear from Monsef Slawi from Operation Warp Speed before he resigned uh, that if the J&J vaccine got on the market in February, there would be approaching 10 million doses available more in March, more in April. So it's not going to be a huge amount of vaccine immediately. But the fact that this is a one shot vaccine means that 10 million doses is enough for 10 million people. You know, we're waiting for the J&J vaccine study results while also growing increasingly concerned about the impact that newly discovered variants of the coronavirus might have on infection rates and disease severity. Damien, what did we learn this week about the ability of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines to protect people against the coronavirus variants? So the news is good with nuances. So uh, according to lab studies in which basically the the blood of people who've been vaccinated is put up against um, these variants of SARS-CoV-2, we learned that, um, you know, a common one that appears to be more virulent than others called B117, the vaccines appear to protect against that just as well as they do the sort of classic COVID-19, I suppose, that, that we already know. A second variant called B1351 um, the story is a little bit different. You know, looking at um, some lab research that Moderna put out uh, this week, their vaccine is less potent at, you know, generating neutralizing antibodies that can stop that variant. But having looked at all the data, Moderna believes that it's still protective, meaning that if you receive two doses of their vaccine, you should still um, be safe from a symptomatic COVID-19 infection of that viral variant. But, you know, this all comes with the caveat that that these are lab studies. This is not a clinical trial, and also that we seem to be discovering new variants faster than we can run these studies. There's another called P1 that appears to be even more infectious uh, than not only the original virus, but also some of the variants that we've seen since. That data is still emerging. So I think one of the takeaways from this week is it's good that the vaccines we have appear to be able to withstand the changes to the virus, but the pace at which we're discovering changes to the virus suggests that this is going to be something that has to be top of mind for scientists and for the companies making these vaccines, presumably for months, if not years to come. And Meg, what did J&J say about its vaccine study? It's being run globally. And what could it tell us about these variants? So this is just incredibly fortuitous timing, really, with the fact that Johnson & Johnson ran this trial, not just in the United States and in North America, but also in 
uh, South Africa and also in Brazil, among other countries, where these variants are circulating. And it was Antonio Regalado at the MIT Tech Review who first pointed this out in just a really fantastic story that the fact that the trials are run in these places, and in particular, you know, South Africa, where that B1351 variant has been in circulation, could mean that. Johnson & Johnson has real-world data on how well a vaccine that is designed around the original spike protein from the, the virus first isolated from Wuhan, China, how that kind of vaccine actually works in protecting people against the B1351 variant, perhaps because they also ran the trial in Brazil against the P1 variant. And, you know, we talked with uh, Joe Wolk from J&J about the fact that what impact will that actually have on the results? You know, they don't know because there's a possibility that, you know, like Moderna suggests, they should still provide good protection. And maybe that won't impact overall efficacy in protecting against disease. But if it does, J&J might present the results broken out by geography. So we could actually see, you know, is the efficacy higher in the U.S. than it is in South Africa? And that will hold implications not just for the J&J vaccine, but also potentially for the others, because they all use that original spike protein construct. We did get a reminder this week that COVID vaccine development is risky and difficult. Uh, Merck announced on Monday that it was halting the development of two COVID vaccine candidates because of inadequate immune response to the injections. You know, this was a fairly stunning setback because Merck is, you know, one of the most successful vaccine developers in the industry. And the technology that it was using to develop those COVID vaccines had been used successfully in the past against other viruses. So I guess, um, you know, no pressure. J&J. Merck is in such an interesting position because they are the storied and, you know, really successful vaccine developer. I mean, of all the childhood vaccines we have, a great proportion of those come from Merck and from one guy in particular, Morris Hillman. But Ken Frazier, the CEO of Merck, uh, came out sort of back in the spring saying it was irresponsible of companies and scientists to be talking about developing a COVID vaccine in such short timelines. And, you know, it turned out that it could be done. Um, and Merck was sort of left in this strange position of being behind. You know, it turned out that the immune responses they generated just were inferior both to natural infection and to the vaccines that are already available. It's just such an interesting position for Merck to be in. We should note, though, they are still developing drugs for COVID, and there are a lot of eyes focused on what they're going to deliver there. Something strange has been happening to CRISPR. The revolutionary approach to editing the human genome hasn't changed, but over the past few months, the stock prices of CRISPR-focused companies have been soaring, adding billions of dollars to their valuations for no discernible reason. Is the world suddenly waking up to the potential of genome editing? Is there a cryptic Elon Musk tweet behind it all? Or is this the work of a subreddit none of us has ever heard of? Joining us to discuss this strange moment in CRISPR history is Kevin Davis, executive editor of the CRISPR Journal and author of the new book, Editing Humanity. Hey, Kevin, thanks for joining us. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the stock market stuff. The past few months have been particularly kind to CRISPR therapeutics, Intellia, Editas Medicine, and Beam Therapeutics, despite none of them making the kind of news that would usually drive a Wall Street rally. So what do you think is going on? 
Well, I would love to say it's all because of the, in, in, as a result of the publication of my book on October the 6th, 2020. I somehow think that the event that happened 24 hours later was a little bit more significant. And that, of course, was the award of the Nobel Prize in Chemistry to Jennifer Doudner and Emmanuel Charpentier. That certainly uh, really validated CRISPR. We've known, we've read countless magazine articles and newspaper stories many by Sharon Begley, of course, in stats over the years um, that have signaled the, the promise of CRISPR gene editing. But when you win the Nobel Prize, you know that the technology has truly arrived. And then, although it was on the cards, the publication in early December of the CRISPR therapeutics team's work in treating sickle cell disease, I think was a really, a truly landmark uh, moment. We've known that this story was coming. Many of your uh, listeners have been following uh, the National Public Radio's uh, reports on Victoria Gray, a very uh, brave um, pioneer uh, who volunteered for a groundbreaking sickle cell uh, gene editing trial. Her results uh, were published in the New England Journal of Medicine in early December, and they were nothing short of spectacular. And there's many caveats. Uh, the therapy is going to be very expensive. The number of people in this trial is really just one reported at the moment. But uh, we have a paper coming out, a review of this work coming out from Fyodor Ernov in the next issue of the CRISPR journal. He says the results were borderline utopian. The praise doesn't get much higher than that. So with all of those caveats in mind, you know, in addition to, to obviously the revolutionary potential of some of this stuff, do you think that the Wall Street aspect of this is sustainable? Can these companies possibly continue to carry these multi-billion dollar valuations as they work through what are likely going to be the ups and downs that come with early stage science? I think it's probably fair to say, and I'm not pretending that I'm an expert on, on the commercial side of this, that the prices have probably overshot. And I think there's been a correction in the last uh, week or so as a result of that. But the long-term potential of CRISPR is, is definitely here to stay. And then, of course, we're also seeing new rifts on CRISPR, in particular base editing and a whole new wave of CRISPR biotech companies half a dozen at least that I could rattle off that will probably be aiming to go public in the next year or two. So I think the field is here to say, even if the market sees some wobbles in the near term. So before CRISPR became a, a stock market story, it seemed to be one about the virtues of patience. You know, a lot of these companies started with big ambitions of editing out disease-causing problems. But the road to actually creating medicines for people has proved to be a little bit longer than some might have hoped for. Now that it's 2021, where are we on the path to having an FDA-approved CRISPR drug? It's still going to take several years, I think, before we get to that point. Uh, the work on that was just published on Victoria Gray in the sickle cell trial is spectacular, but expanding that to uh, other patients and building up the numbers and the evidence to get this to the point that the FDA is going to approve this, this is probably several years uh, down the road. Um, the other trials are just getting into the clinic. So again, uh, you've already got to do the clinical trials. And CRISPR is a magical technology, but it can only do so much. You still have to do the hard work in the clinic. So as we briefly mentioned before, you are the author of Editing Humanity, The CRISPR Revolution, and the New Era of Genome Editing, which was published late last year. 
It's a deep dive into the scientific history and the real world implications of CRISPR. And I was curious, you know, having done all the requisite research for writing such a book, what do you think is missing from the mainstream conversation around CRISPR and genome editing at large? The work on potentially manipulating human embryos, I think, has uh, definitely taken a, uh, a new course as uh, a National Academy's report has been published that lays out a pathway for potentially condoning genome editing in human embryos, but in very narrow circumstances. And we know from some work that's been recently published and some other preprints that are online that trying to do uh, gene editing uh, in human embryos is a scandalously hairy proposition. I know that some researchers thought they could get this to work uh, effectively, but the amount of um, mishaps and rearrangements that seem to occur even at the gene that you're trying to target suggests that there's a lot more basic research that needs to be done. Uh, before this is is ready for prime time. So in his New York Times review of your book, which, by the way, calls it deeply researched, but with breezy prose, which is not an easy combination, as all we science writers and reporters know, um, Carl Zimmer focuses on CRISPR's place amid this pandemic, writing, quote, if CRISPR is indeed a miracle of our age, it seems in this time of carnage to be an impotent one. Do you agree with that? And what role has CRISPR played in this pandemic? Yeah, I think that was a little harsh, but um, as I say, uh, CRISPR can do many things, but no one is or should be presenting it as a uh, as a panacea for every medical ailment that's uh, affecting uh, uh, humanity. CRISPR is showing a lot of promise in tackling COVID-19, particularly on the diagnostic front. Um, many of your listeners will know that some of the pioneers in the CRISPR world, Jennifer Doudna and Feng Zhang at the Broad Institute, have co-founded companies that are making fantastic strides in developing rapid, affordable uh, diagnostic tests for a variety of infectious diseases, including COVID-19. So those platforms are rapidly being turned to uh, providing um, uh, tests for the, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Whether that is going to be um, available or prepared enough in time to make a meaningful impact in the diagnostic uh, effort that's ongoing for COVID-19, I think is, is probably a long shot. But the work that's being done now is going to be very beneficial when the next pandemic hits, because the same tools and technologies and platforms are easily going to be switched and adapted for whatever uh, new virus uh, uh, threatens humanity. So, Kevin, your book starts with the story of He Zhuangkui, uh, the Chinese scientist who shocked the world in 2018 with the news that he had edited the DNA of human embryos. And those babies were actually born. You know, we haven't heard as much either about her or those babies in recent months. Do you know what the latest is? We don't. I don't think anyone does. Uh, he Zhuangkui is languishing in a Chinese prison. He's serving a three-year prison term. And other than knowing the nicknames of the Chinese twins that were born in late 2018, Lulu and Nana, uh, there was a third baby born about six months later from everything we can gather. But to my knowledge, we know nothing about their status, their identities, their well-being. Um, and I think many researchers would genuinely like to offer their services to help monitor these children um, to make sure that uh, there were no significant off-target effects, which could potentially increase the risk of cancer. Um, from the evidence that we saw uh, that He Jiankui presented in Hong Kong and then was made available in a, a, a manuscript that was never published, but excerpts were widely circulated, uh, we know that the quality of the ed gene editing work 
that he did at the gene in question uh, was pretty shoddy. And it, it really um, raises the, the possibility that some other um, genetic scissor effects uh, occurred at other parts of the genome, which could have some pretty dire consequences for those children. So these are experiments of nature that should never have happened. But how they're doing, we just don't know. It's a shame. Talking about this kind of made me want to ask you, what do you think when the promise of CRISPR is realized, if if you can even think about there being a time when it is? I mean, I wonder if you could say, has the promise of sequencing the human genome been realized? <laughs> but but if and when you sort of reach that point, what will CRISPR have accomplished? Do you think how much will it have really changed our world? I, I still think there's a very high ceiling for CRISPR. I'm using air quotes when I say CRISPR because the CRISPR gene editing platform is giving rise to many iterations. People are talk about base editing as CRISPR 2.0, and there'll be a 3.0 and a 4.0 in the coming years, I've absolutely no doubt. The beauty of base editing is that you're performing precision chemistry on the genome. And as a, as a former geneticist uh, by training, literally gives me goosebumps. Um, you're not even using the scissors uh, the genetic scissors that CRISPR is famous for, you're performing much more nuanced, uh, finessed surgery on the DNA to make a single base change uh, of your desire to fix mutations. So if that technology can be expanded and the machinery can be easily and readily delivered to the cells or the tissues in question, and all the other safety issues can be dealt with, as uh, and they seem to be making good progress in that regard, then really the sky's the limit, at least for diseases where we have a genetic handle on them. More interesting would be whether some of the common diseases, some mental illness, schizophrenia, for example, maybe we can get a genetic handle on those. That's all remains to be seen. Um, but there's, there's huge upside for CRISPR and genome editing in general. Kevin, thanks for being here with us. Thank you so much. Before 2020, the biggest debates in science communication were often about balancing hope and hype when it came to novel discoveries. The COVID-19 pandemic introduced a new dynamic as scientists rallied to dispel misinformation that was frequently coming from the most powerful people in the world. Yeah, that seemed to unite scientists who might otherwise disagree about actual science, but it also substantially increased the number of people tuned into these conversations. Now, with a new administration promising a return to something like normalcy, what will the future of public scientific debate look like? Joining us to talk about it is Dr. Megan Ranney, an emergency medicine physician and associate professor at Brown University. Dr. Ranney, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on today. So Dr. Ranney, as someone doing this communicating along with your day job of actually taking care of patients, what do you feel like things were like through most of 2020 out in the sort of science communication sphere? 2020 was the most unusual year I've ever experienced in science communication. You know, over the last decade, um, many of us in medicine and public health have become increasingly involved in translating our work into something that the public can relate to, whether it's around firearm injury or around access to healthcare or around the opioid epidemic. We've become public voices, um, talking about what we see and what the science says, um, and sharing that with the public. But in 2020, we weren't just trying to share the things that we cared about. We became critical voices for the public because the public voices we normally would have trusted were so untrustworthy. And how do you see that changing now? 
It's a great question. You know, for the past year, we've been united in fighting against misinformation and for the value of science and public health. With the advent of an administration that once again believes in science and administration, one of the things that we're seeing um, is a little bit of a decrease in that urgency, but also a reemergence um, of some, uh, for lack of a better word, arguments or internal debates that normally happen behind closed doors, um, but now are happening out in public. I think it's kind of neat that folks get to see the science get made in real time, but the worry is, is that it can be confusing and that these attacks can sometimes get awfully personal. So you mentioned this before, you know, that scientists spent a lot of the past year combating deliberately misleading information about the virus or about the vaccines meant to prevent it. And that, you know, there's maybe this return to normalcy in in public communication that can follow. But I'm curious, you know, moving forward, is there a way to stop or limit the spread of outright lies without stifling the healthy debate and dissent that, as you mentioned, is so integral to the scientific process? There is sometimes a role to not censoring or canceling voices, but to making sure that there is fact-checking out there. Uh, We know from our scientific research that myths and untruths, even if debunked, are likely to be remembered. And so those things that are blatantly false, just as we retract them from medical journals, we have retracted the false publication that linked vaccines to autism. That is not true, right? And we've taken it out of the journals. Similarly, there may be statements that we need to take back sometimes or or limit their um, availability on, on social media. Sometimes when it's deliberate misinformation or or it just turns out not to be true, that's kind of a black and white situation. But there seems to be, and this was really, you know, throughout 2020, so not a new phenomenon, but what about those gray area folks and getting things wrong or just kind of being in a gray area or overselling something? I just wonder, like, how should we and, you know, people trying to consume all of this information approach just trying to figure out who to trust? You know, I think it's a really difficult question. And the folks with the most followers are not always the folks who are most trustworthy. Um, I think that there are people who've gotten uh, a an unnecessarily bad name or an unnecessarily good name. Um, one of the things about this pandemic is that information is coming out so quickly that it's easy to make unintentional mistakes. And I know that I've made mistakes um, on Twitter and have either written mea culpas or have deleted the tweets um, that I Uh, wish that I hadn't put out, um, simply because we were moving too fast. As to which experts to trust, I mean, that's always the million-dollar question. Um, I think trust people that provide citations, trust people that don't attack other people. Um, That's usually not the greatest sign. Um, Keep your thinking hat on. Um, Easier said than done. And I feel like sometimes that's something that conspiracy theorists say. Uh, But to take everything with a grain of salt and also know that no one is perfect. So one of the other really important issues that you've been focused on since the dawn of the pandemic is personal protective equipment. And you co-founded a group called Get Us PPE to try to help alleviate the shortages for healthcare workers and now for many other communities as well. So I was curious, what does the PPE supply look like right now? Are doctors still being asked to reuse respirator masks, for example, or or making use of of plastic bags to protect themselves? So the first thing I'll say is that um, this is actually a great example of the translation of science into public health and into the public sphere. We had science very early on, basic data that showed us that we weren't going to have enough PPE and it wasn't listened to. Many hospital systems across the country have managed to source adequate, not 
fully sufficient but adequate PPE for their workers, with a caveat that most of us are still reusing N95s. What we're seeing at Get Us PPE is that, however, there's a large segment of healthcare that has been left behind. Over 95% of our requests for donated PPE are now coming from non-acute care facilities. So we're not getting so many requests from hospitals anymore like we were you know, in the early stages of the pandemic. More than 50% of our requests were from hospitals. Now we're getting requests from nursing homes, home healthcare workers, clinics, places that aren't affiliated with those big organizations that can purchase these large amounts of PPE. So the PPE crisis is still very real, but it is real in a way that highlights these structural inequities in our society. We had the CEO of Prestige Ameritech on CNBC this week, um, you know, one of the big domestic manufacturers of N95s. And he said that they have a surplus of 5 million N95 respirators they make every month that hospitals aren't asking for. And there seemed to be a disconnect. Do you think that could be a function of cost? And should it be changed? If Would it be safer to get a new N95 every day or however often you're supposed to? Yeah. So in normal pre-pandemic times, I would have had a new N95, not just every day, but for every patient. And what I think that we're seeing in some of these reports from manufacturers that they have excess capacity comes back to some of the major issues that we've highlighted since the beginning, which is that without uh, price supports from the federal government, the people who are in need of PPE still can't pay the elevated prices. Uh, and those who have money are going to find ways around the system. So there is a supply-demand mismatch where there are people that still have demand and can't meet it because they can't buy in the quantities or at the cost that it's being offered at. Well, meanwhile, the suppliers may have, quote-unquote, extra that's not getting out. In many ways, it's similar to the vaccine crisis. Well, you know, this past year has showed us so much about how we as a country respond to a pandemic. And here in the U.S., for the most part, it, it's gone pretty badly. But there were bright spots in how quickly really effective vaccines were developed, for example. Two questions. What do you hope will change as a result of our experiences with COVID? And what do you actually expect um, will change as a result? I have tremendous hope that the year ahead is going to be so much better than the year behind us. There are a lot of unknowns out there. There are all of these new variants um, that we're identifying with greater and greater speed, unfortunately, which may change the trajectory of the t- pandemic. But we have vaccines. Um, We now have an administration that believes in science. We're going to have the data infrastructure and the logistics system set up to fix many of the problems that we faced over the past year. But I also uh, have concern that we're going to get through the pandemic. Everyone's going to take a deep breath and say, oh, good, we don't have to worry about public health and health anymore. We're no longer in the midst of the pandemic. And forget that it was that lack of attention and lack of investment that got us here in the first place. The reason why the pandemic is so out of control in our country and in a few other countries across the world is because we have persistently underfunded public health, ignored issues of equity, and ignored some of those basic structural factors, not just, of course, income inequality, racism, et cetera, but also structural factors like information technology systems, uh, having an adequate public health workforce. Um, Those infrastructure uh, structural issues, if we don't address them now, will set us up for a repeat failure when the next infectious disease pandemic comes and will set us up also for continued loss of life from the non-infectious disease epidemics that have continued unabated and unnoticed during COVID-19. We know that opioid overdoses are going up. We know that gun homicides are going up. 
And those also deserve our attention and can be fixed with many of the same strategies that we're using to address COVID-19. Dr. Rennie, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It is a total pleasure to join you, and um, thanks for inviting me on. Before we go, we wanted to share the exciting news that we are welcoming a new podcast to the STAT family. So by popular demand, we are launching the First Opinion podcast on February 17th. Each week, STAT's First Opinion editor, Pat Skerritt, sits down with star contributors who have compelling perspectives on the people, issues, and ideas that are shaping health, medicine, and scientific discovery. Here's a little eavesdrop. I have so many questions for you. When you're with a patient, are you sometimes thinking, this would make a great essay? Situations that, that really challenged me the most were those that were fraught with so much ambiguity and uncertainty. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Skerritt, the founding editor of Stats First Opinion. So I'll just segue to a different question. That would be great, thanks. <laughs> Each week on this podcast, I'll take a deeper dive with First Opinion authors into topics they've recently raised. Biotech insiders, healthcare providers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative pieces to share about the life sciences writ large. You'll be able to hear our first episode with Dr. Jay Baruch this February. Your name would come up as someone that they read and admire. I don't know about that. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Follow the First Opinion podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud to listen in each Wednesday morning. And to learn more about this podcast, go to statnews.com slash the First Opinion podcast. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Embanado and Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you're buying into CRISPR stocks. You can do all of that by sending us an email to readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.